2: Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where myth and misconception is stopped at the English Channel, the podcast that asks, who do you think you are kidding Mr. History? I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I'm here with my ever-loyal co-host and safeguarder of the coasts of truth, Kyle Glover.
3: Safeguarder of the coasts, I'm getting that one on the next t-shirt run. Hello everyone. How are you doing this week, Kyle? Yep, yeah, good. Better good. than last
2: week, Mike. I recovered from the awful cold. Good. You can, you can speak clearly. Well, as clear as ever, anyway. Well, as clear as somebody from Stoke-on-Trent can, yes. Mm. Well, this week, dear Ragers, we are staying with the Second World War and coming even closer to home, or at least mine and Kyle's home, and the dark times of the threat of Nazi invasion. And to take us on this hurried defence of history, we are joined by Reuter, producer, and one half of the Scandalmongers podcast, Phil Craig. Phil, welcome to History Rage.
4: I am absolutely delighted to join you. Thank you very, very you're, much. You're welcome. And can I just say, I'm not I'm not expecting balance, fairness, academic
2: respectability, or concern for my own personal reputation, nor yours. This this is exactly what we are looking for. Um, and, you know, at the time of recording, the moon landing conspiracy egypts are coming out of the real woodwork for us. So uh, what reputation we've got left, we can happily destroy here. So we've been in touch for a fair few months now, kind of supporting our respective podcasts. Um, and we've had your co-scandal monger, Andrew Loney, on here talking about Edward Eighth, But that was before your podcast launched. So do you want to take some time to tell us and our listeners a bit about yourself and your background and the podcast that you've brought to the podcasting world? I would love to. Yes, well, I'm 62. Oh, looking good, sir. Looking good. Thank you
4: so much. Thank you so much. Um, see, I was raised in that post-war era, and World War Two was everywhere. Church parades, Battle of Britain Day, Remembrance Sunday, reading Victor comic, Valiant comic, in the Air Training Corps. I loved flying. I was quite good at it. I got into the uh, university with, through the RAF, so I was in the University Air Squadron, where I was taught to fly by an actual Spitfire pilot. Absolutely mental, brilliant bloke. He still had the mustache. He was must 60 something himself. He still had the MG sports car. Uh, just an amazing character, an absolute head case. Um, so I was really in love with flying, but actually, bizarrely, the bizarre life twist, I didn't join the RAF when I graduated. um I decided to join the BBC, another possibly <laughs> moribund British
2: institution, but I joined them. And they taught well, as me... Uh, as I always say, if you've already been taught to fly, why join the RAF?
4: Yes. <laughs> uh, it was a little bit... I was very lucky because I went to one of those posh universities where you don't actually have to give your life away to be in the University Air Squadron. So I, I did it. I enjoyed it. I did a few camps. And then I thought, ooh, making TV, TV programs sounds mm. a lot more fun. So that's what I did. Did that for quite a while. Current Affairs, Panorama, things like that. Ended up going into more historical documentaries, And in 2000, I was really, really lucky. I was asked to make BBC One's big 60th anniversary of the Battle of Britain series. Four hours, two years to make it. There were loads and loads of veterans still alive. I got to meet everybody. I had parties in my garden with Spitfire pilots, people Mm -hmm. who'd worked with Churchill, old soldiers from Dunkirk. It was amazing. Oh God! And I still think, and I was very proud of the series. Um, I wrote a rather uh, successful book, if I say so myself, off the back of that, called. I started with my good friend Tim Clayton. And that really got me into thinking about 1940 and the Battle of Britain.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, and we'll get onto that in a minute. Yeah. But I was, I guess I was part of a kind of movement then, I would say, along with a few other writers, some of whom you'll know, like James Holland a few years later, um, Stephen Bungay, yeah. um, David Edgerton, who were beginning to think about the war and especially the beginning of the war in a rather different, different way. Um, yeah, so after that, more World War II documentaries, other films, um, current affairs, history, lived in Australia for a while at the ABC, worked for the ABC there, which is amazing. And I have recently kind of semi retired from telly. Um, I'm writing a book, uh, about 1945, which will be the sort of third in that finest art trilogy. Yeah. Because there was a middle one about 1942. And I guess in a move from broadcasting to whatever this is, narrow casting, I suppose. I have this wonderful podcast with yeah. my dear friend Andrew Loney, who I've known for absolutely ages. Um and we have a lot of fun. Hmm. Um, you know, unmediated, unfiltered, and unprofitable.
2: <laughs> I love it. Um so that's me. That's why I'm here. So if people haven't run across scandalmongers before, you know, what what's it about? What's what's your theme? What are you what's your style?
4: It's a it's current affairs and a bit of history. With a particular focus on stories that were shocking, that changed things that were seen as being particularly um, revelatory or indeed scandalous. Mm. Oh, you know, our current show, which we're just finishing tonight, in fact, is about the Profumo affair. You know, it's an all time great British scandal. We've covered lots of the, covered lots about Diana. I wrote a biography of Diana as well. Talked a lot about Diana. Obviously, Andrew's got some great stories to tell about his work. On Lord Mountbatten
3: mm-hmm. and
4: on Windsor, the Trader King, Duke of Windsor, um, and we've got you know loads of mates, and we interview them. We had a, we did a really interesting show the other day with Andy Webb, who broke the Bashir story, and really you know ex- really ex- generated that incredible scandal at the BBC um, over how Bashir got the Panorama. Yeah. So yeah, it's a little bit more contemporary, perhaps, than some of the stuff you do, but the focus is on anything that is scandalous,
2: salacious, exciting, and revelatory. Excellent. Well, we will get links out of the show notes to that, so anybody that's listening, once you've finished listening to us, of course, do go and give Scandalmongers your time. You will not regret it. Uh, and if you go back to listen to uh, Andrew Loney's episode on Edward the Eighth as well, is also well worth your time. Else is this one. I do hope so. So let's kick oh. this one off then, because mm-hmm. I know you've been itching to do this one for quite some time so phil will you please tell our pitchfork, pitchfork wielding mob out there what the one thing you wish people would just stop believing is
4: they just need to get over the battle of britain movie they just have to get over it i mean i know it's hard especially if you're my generation or a bit younger and look i get it Lots to like. Susanna York, obviously. All that air-to-air photography, groundbreaking. Come in, blue, too. Come in, blue, too. Oh, that was Susanna York again, wasn't it? Oh, I don't know. It was, <laughs> it was great. It was, it was exciting. And I think I was nine or ten when I first saw it. It was thrilling. But oh, my God. The history. The anachronisms. The inaccuracies. It's as bad as Susanna's hairdo. It's just total nonsense. Especially <laughs> that lugubrious rubbish from Laurence Olivier. We're losing. We need a miracle. They'll be in London in a week. I mean, it it completely undersells his own incredible achievement. I mean, the guy's basically a second Nelson. He has an amazing war. That Battle of Britain is is what he's planned for for three or four years. Everything he plans comes off, Mm. pretty much. And it's completely undersold in that film because it's presented in a strange quirk of British psychology that I've yet to understand. We love seeing even what was the incredible triumph as a kind of underdog story a kind of backs to the wall hanging on improvising oh my god we're so amateurish it's and the germans oh my god they're so amazing they're supermen they're machine age heroes how can we beat them and do you know what when i've calmed down a bit and I actually get to talk in detail <laughs> what we need to do is reverse these caricatures because it wasn't germany that was modern and super efficient and mechanized and incredibly well organized, that was us. Germany at this point, yeah. is they're the ones who are improvising, they're amateurish, they're romantic, they haven't planned anything, everything they're trying to do is totally unrealistic, and they get absolutely stuffed. So that's what people <laughs> need to know about the Battle of Britain. Now, I know you don't want to talk much about the air war, and I'm more than ready to talk well, about the invasion maybe. part as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, let's go focus on the invasion because we have done an excellent episode with James Holland on the Battle of Britain was a cakewalk, uh, an absolute whipping, I believe. was I'm
4: sure some people are thinking, oh, for God's sake, Phil. Obviously, <laughs> hindsight plays a massive part in this. At the time, yeah. people didn't know what we know now. I get that. The fall of France, the fall of Belgium, the fall of Holland. It was shocking. It was unprecedented. It was unexpected. America was being unhelpful. Stalin was allied to Hitler. So a lot of people sort of got, got into a real panic. And that could have led to a kind of defeat. But I'm here to tell you, it could never have led to defeat in the actual military sense. And it could never, ever have led to an invasion.
2: Okay. So we've seen lots, as we say, probably too much focus on the RAF and the Battle of Britain as being that bulwark against the Nazi invasion. But to be fair... And I don't want to be unfair to the RAF here. They're the bulwark against Luftwaffe superiority, which is one part of an invasion plan. So, obviously you say, you know, we're ready, we're ruthless, we're efficient. Bring it, Germany. What has Germany got to deal with, in addition to the RAF, to get here? Well, it's wet. There's lots of
4: it. It's very windy and tidal. And Britannia has ruled it for an awful long time. I'm talking about sea power. I'm talking about the English mm-hmm. Channel. It's really hard to invade a country. It's really hard. You, have you done D-Day? You must have done. I mean, that yeah, wasn't... Yeah, we've done Omaha Beach. wasn't a disaster. An epic operation. And at that stage, the Allies had absolute overwhelming superiority on the sea and in the air. And they'd done it before. They'd done several invasions on a similar scale. So they knew what they were doing. They had an incredible kit designed just for that task. And yet even then it was seen as a gamble. Even then they were worried it would all go wrong. So go back four years to the situation facing the German army and the German navy trying to consider an invasion of Britain. And actually you need to go back a little bit further to a story that a lot of people also misunderstand, which is the Norway campaign. The Norway campaign is seen as a disaster for the for the poor old Norwegians because they get occupied and for the British who are driven out and it brings down Chamberlain's government as most people know but what people what most people don't know is that it was a British naval triumph the German navy is absolutely hammered in the Norway campaign by the British and also actually to be fair by the Norwegians they lose like I think they had eight or nine capital ships that they could call on you know battleships and cruisers big ships Hmm. At least some six of them, I think, off the top of my head, Scharnhorst, Neisnauer, Bluscher, Kurdisburg, I think the Karlsruhe. The Kurdisburg is sunk by our, um, naval dive bombers. It's the first time that had ever happened. They lose all these big ships and they lose 10 destroyers in Narvik alone. It's battling Narvik. And yeah. do you know how many they had? Like Britain had like 200. They had 20. So they lose half, their, <laughs> they lose half their destroyer's force in a single battle. And there's something else also, they. What happens in Norway gives them a sort of mortal fear of the navy. Um, you know the incredible heroism. The one of the amazing story of the Glowworm. I don't know if you know it. it it's absolutely outmatched. It has this suicide attack on this huge German heavy cruiser. It's tiny little ship, and there are several episodes like that in that campaign. And the, the Germans come out of that war, come out of that campaign. Poor old Admiral Raider no, he's lost nearly two-thirds of his operational ships, and suddenly he's going to be asked to plan an invasion. So, basically, (laughs) their navy is really, really fucked after Norway. Second point, the channel itself. Um, A lot of the um, German analysis, because we'll go into this in your next question, they do plan the invasion, and the, the, the documents that they pass to themselves are fascinating. But but the heart of it, the army, which are super confident because they've just won all these campaigns, they, they yeah. keep saying this is like an opposed river crossing. And it so, so isn't. And they just don't have the kit. I mean, they plan to use these barges. Okay, some of them will be towed by tugs. Some of them will be towed by motorized barges. But these are not the landing craft you've seen in Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. These are just barges. And have you been in the English Channel... Like ever. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah. Being pulled along and it's tidal and the weather changes and oh hello, here comes the Royal Navy. Now, we saw at Dunkirk, where the Germans had, you know, a lot of air power. They didn't sink that many British ships, they sank some, usually the stationary ones. But these destroyers, mm-hmm. the British ones, they go at thirty knots. I don't know if you've been on a destroyer going at thirty knots, I actually have. It's like a I have it's like a speedboat. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredible thing to be on. And they wouldn't even have to shoot at these barges. you just sail alongside of them. They all capsize. (laughs) The the idea that you would keep out, even if they won the Battle of Britain, even if they had total air superiority, the idea that they could keep out the Navy for the invasion, and and also even if they had, let's say they're just amazingly lucky. The other big thing about invasions is resupply. And it gets dark, yeah. doesn't it? So at night, you're not going to be landing much because the British will be out and about with their submarines and their e-boats, British you know, motor torpedo boats and other destroyers. Yeah. They'll just cause carnage. So basically, those, those are the big problems. They haven't got much of a navy. They think actually temporarily, and this is a big story in 1940 that I, I've talked about before on my own podcast. Mm. In 1940, um, in July... Churchill does something rather dramatic and rather, um, many people think, quite shameful. He attacks the French fleet and he takes out some of the biggest French naval units. Yes, kill 1,300 Frenchmen in a day. That's probably as many as the German sailors they've killed in the war up to that point. And they were allies two weeks earlier. So it's a very big and dramatic thing. It does take away from Hitler the chance to really bolster his naval forces. Although, to be honest, I think even with a French navy, an invasion would have been. Completely up.
2: Yeah, it would have been uh, a total disaster for the Germans. Do you do you think? Uh, I mean, you say that the the sinking, the destroying of the French fleet, or at least the southern French fleet, that was because technically it was part of Vichy France at that point, isn't it? Not quite. Vichy hasn't really thought. Not quite. No. So at that point, it is an Allied navy. Yeah. Um, well, it's 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 it falls into all
4: sorts of grey areas. Um. To be honest. And my own personal theory, uh, I made a, a documentary about this for Channel 4 about 10 years ago,
3: mm-hmm.
4: is a large part of this is manoeuvring to impress the Americans. We'll get on to America later, I think. Um, you know, yeah. they, they take a very dim view of Britain's chances, um, especially given that their ambassador thinks that the British are about to surrender. And it's a really important gesture that Churchill makes and it really grabs Roosevelt's attention. Roosevelt's a naval man himself. He's very conscious about the naval balance of power. And there's a big change in the Americans' attitudes after the French attack because it really shows them that, A, the British are not going to give in, that they'll fight on and they'll fight dirty if they have to. Yeah, That's why it's important. Yeah, we're in this to win. That's why it's important.
3: Yeah, so whilst we're on the subject of the French, of of our allies, um, we always view 1940 as you know the time when Britain stood alone. Um, with, I think that sounds as the underdog, as we've sort of mentioned already. Um, is there any actual merit to that, or is that just fiction? Well, I
4: said I calmed down, and now I'm going to be a bit calmer, a bit more rational. <laughs> of course, okay. it was a terrifying time. You know, the idea that the France, which had fought for four years in the Great War, would collapse in four weeks was completely shattering. Um, And there were a lot of people who just felt there was no point in carrying on. Famous story, Harold Nicholson, government minister or senior politician, telling his wife to get the cyanide pills in. They thought the Germans would be here in weeks. Um, But to me, the real danger, we're talking now about May, June, going into July, the real danger wasn't a military defeat. It was the collapse of the will to fight. Um, Britain was facing uh, the prospect of limited American help, if any, uh, a U-boat campaign that could go on for years. And in the First World War, actually, rather more effectively than the Second World War, maybe you should have me back one day to do U-boat, schmoo boat But in the the First World (laughs) War, it was actually really scary, the U-boats. And they were thinking of that. Actually, Hitler hadn't got enough of them, in truth. Um, So they were facing that. And they were facing the prospect of terror bombing. And this had, you know, this obsessed people in the 1930s after Guernica. And then in the early part of the war that what they did to Warsaw and Rotterdam, you know, the idea w- that we'd be defenseless, bombed from above, starved by the U-boats. Yeah, there is some merit in the idea that we were an underdog. But actually, a lot of people, even at the time without hindsight, were conscious of the fundamental strengths of the Navy, of the Empire, of the economic power of Britain. And I think we also need to, this is one of the, as I mentioned earlier, there's a kind of new, there was about 20 years ago, this new kind of theme coming into history of this era. And it's partly about looking at Britain through the eyes of its enemies. Because the Germans never thought we were the underdog. I mean, they were quite scared of Britain. That quote, the book I mentioned that Stephen Bunge wrote, it was called The Most Dangerous Enemy. That's what Hitler or one of one of his top people called us the most dangerous enemy because they were terrified of a rerun of world war 1 but they wouldn't win quickly they'd get tied down in a long slugging match with economically more powerful enemy who would blockade them starve them and and eventually suck the americans in to beat them so you know yeah. they were scared of us as much as we were scared of them um so yeah there was some, there is something in the argument that we were underdog, but it was, it was more about fear than actual military jeopardy. Yeah. And it's also, you know, a little bit also about a class of people that had power in Britain. Um, Halifax, of course, famously represents those people. And I would never say Halifax was a sympathizer with Hitler. I don't think it was at all. I think there were people in the mm-hmm. ruling classes who were a bit, and Andrew could talk about that there the were Nazi yeah. sympathizers, and it's quite possible that a, recently, a recent former king was one of them. But Halifax was a pragmatist. He made mm-hmm. the case that if we fight on, A, we might lose, but B, we'll bankrupt ourselves, we'll end up in hock to the Americans, and we'll never be a powerful independent empire again. And to Churchill's credit, because he was an imperialist as well, that Churchill said, so be it. If that's what it takes... This moment in history, so be it. Um, and after that, that those famous cabinet arguments. The Germans kept trying. In June, there was a famous thing with Rab Butler, where he he gets into some very, very ill-advised conversations uh, with German agents through a, Swiss, a Swedish diplomat. They are trying to kind of bring the British to the table, and they think that the British will see sense. But actually, I think the real danger had passed by. Well, sort of second week in June, Dunkirk's happened, they've got the army back, and now they're preparing to fight. And actually, yeah. over in Berlin, they're not. They have this month of partying. Um, you know, I said earlier that they were romantic. Oh, you know, the Germans were not as efficient or well-organized. there There'd been no planning for a campaign against Britain because the assumption was if they could beat France, Britain would come to terms. Hitler always believed that. Yeah. He had no desire to take the British Empire. He wasn't interested in naval power. He'd like to have squared off the British, and then he could concentrate on doing ghastly things in Europe and conquering Bolshevism and killing off loads of Jews. That
2: was his vision. He'd been pretty clear yeah. about it for his very first book. Um, yeah. It's all there in Mein Kampf. This shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone.
4: So, you know, Churchill, with big thanks to the Labour Party, comrades, were you know the ministers from the Labour Party who were in government, uh, which was kind of brave of them, because quite a few of their members are communists who were sort of sympathetic yeah. to Stalin at the time. But no, uh, once they face down that war cabinet kind of peace initiative, Britain was going to fight. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah. Germany wastes time. Um, they're partying. They're looting artworks. They're having parades. They're assuming the British will come to terms. The British don't. And it's really only in July, August. The Hitler and the generals, of the admirals, sit down and say, "Okay, guys, we're actually going to have to do this invasion." And the, the uh, I don't know if James may have talked to you about this when he was on, but the papers that they pass between themselves are hysterical. It's, it's like, do we really have to? And 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 the, we can't take hundred thousand men. We can maybe take ten thousand, but only if we have
2: you know and. <laughs> It's, it's that. You're not even going to be able to take rye with 10,000 men, are you? It's, it's,
4: it's an incredible insight into the dysfunction at the heart of the Nazi state, even at its moment of greatest success. After it projected this image of kind of invincibility, mm. there's just a complete shambles at the top.
2: It's almost like it's almost like they've got, they've conquered France, which is, let's be honest, what Germany's wanted to do all through time. There's really got no idea to do next. Yeah,
4: they're land power. They're thinking in terms of they're thinking in terms of getting their army across a river, and then it'll beat the British. It probably would have done if the river hadn't been the English Channel and the Royal Navy mm-hmm. wasn't in the way. But they also have very little understanding of how British, how the British think in military terms. They sort of assume that if they create a diversion in the Mediterranean, lots and lots of the home fleet will just go down there, and then there'll be, just kind of like Napoleon tried to do, actually, a couple of hundred years before. And of course they were. We were going to keep everything within a day's sailing of the Channel. And even if they lost, you know, dozens of ships, once they got in and amongst that invasion fleet, it was game over. They also had very little awareness of the RAF, um, and its incredible, you know, command and control system that was groundbreaking, its radar, its its hardened communications, it's the way it was dispersed, where its bases were. Um, I know you don't want to talk mm. about that too much, but one of my favourite stories is one of the toughest days of the Battle of Britain. They send absolutely crack squadrons to attack this base. I think it's Thornley Island near Chichester. And they lose like 20 planes attacking this base, and there's nothing there. It's not even an, <laughs> it's not even an RAF base. It was like they'd have been a training camp for naval aviation 10 years earlier or something. So their intelligence is shit. Um, uh, and they're very amateurish, badly led, mm. and uh, wrapped up in their own propaganda of their own invincibility. Because Goering is saying during these conversations when the Navy's like, what? What? We don't want to plan this invasion. He says, no, don't worry about it. There'll be no, we'll sort the British out. We'll, we'll get rid of the RAF and then we'll bomb London and then they'll just, it'll be a walkover.
0: For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: Okay, thank you. Right, following on then, while we're on the hot topic of shit invasion yeah i've just i've just checked by the way ten
3: thousand men is the same size as William the conqueror's army that's oh well the yeah uh, with a completely different style of war um, i'm not i' not, not i'm not
4: I'm not dissing William's army but you know horses eat grass they don't need to have the uh...
3: Jones, yes, London. this is just yeah, just a ridiculously <laughs> tiny number. Good grief! So let's get into the invasion itself. Let's get into Operation Sea Lion. Um, we've talked a little bit about, I've well, talked a lot about it by now. Um, but what can you tell us? What is the plan? What is the invasion supposed to be from start to finish?
4: It's 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 very hard to say what the plan was because there were so many competing plans from different people in Hitler's circle. Mm-hmm. They initially want to land at several places. The Navy completely freaks out, and they narrow it down to, to little bits, bits of land between Folkestone and New Romney. They're going to have to land paratroops as well. They want to seize New Haven as a working port, um, even though, of course, it was mined and it would have been blown up as soon as they got anywhere near it. Um, so they yeah. do have a plan, but it's so random in 1974, I don't know if you know this story, in 1974 at Sandhurst, they bring in various Germans from the Second World War, um, you know, surviving senior people who fought in the war, and they actually do a massive war game where they act out sea lion. I don't know if you know this. And they have to kind of improvise the best-case sea lion plan from the various bits that they find. So they, they try and tweak it a little bit so that sea lion is plausible.
2: But even the, <laughs> yeah, so everybody around the table stops laughing and they get on with the war game.
4: So, he, But even then, they lose in every scenario. They try it each which way, and everyone ends up with the sea full of dead German soldiers and lots of surrenders and a complete disaster, because it would have been. But yes, the plan um, was to land. Um, paratroopers would seize uh, ground in land to stop the British army coming down to the coast. The small force would land, try and seize a port. Bigger ships would come in, land-heavy equipment. Um, obviously, the, the air will be dominated, they think, by their own air force. Um, they're going to use flat bottom boats. Actually, to be fair to them, they did have 45 armored landing boats. And by the way, in D Day, that took 4,000. They did have 45 of them, but they also requ- requisitioned nearly 1,000 Rhine barges, these wooden barges that would have just sunk in a, in a heavy swell, mm-hmm. or if a, a British ship had got anywhere near them. But And they also they, they had no idea just how savage. Churchill was planning to be and this is a part of the war that doesn't have much coverage you know um, Bomber Command which is a big part of the story of 1940 and very rarely gets a mention not only were they bombing the German uh, air bases they were bombing the, the, the ports where the invasion was going to come from but Churchill had given them permission to use chemical weapons they were going to drop chemical wow. weapons on any invasion on, on some of the beaches they were also going to um, use fuel bombs they were going to basically use massive flamethrowers, so it would have been uh, it would have been carnage. It would have been carnage.
2: So let's say when we talk about them cancelling Operation Sea Lion, it's it's not like Operation Sea Lion itself ever managed to become a solid concept where where they go out to yeah, that's the best plan that we've got on the table, and let's not in, uh, say, Operation Neptune has a solid plan. You know what you're going to do. But does he, does Operation Sea line actually get to any level of completion before being abandoned? Or they just give up on the idea of invading Britain before they've worked they out? They do position
4: troops ready to embark. They do have ships ready. They gather these barges in various ports. Like I say, some of them are quite heavily bombed by the RAF. Um, mm. And the paratroopers are all raring to go. These are probably the ones that all died in Crete the following year. Hitler, uh, like, yeah. you know, like a lot of people, that had a regard, high regard for special forces and powers that didn't always work out in reality for him, or indeed for the British. Um, mm. But it's it is a pivotal moment cancelling Sea Lion because you know he has to accept that he's going to have to live with this thorn in his side, and that's what Britain will be. And everybody knows, and it's often said, that the real heavy lifting. Um, to defeat Hitler in Europe was done by the Soviets on the ground and and America economically with huge amounts of aid, Mm -hmm. both to us and to the Soviets, and then their own forces, of course. But the fact that Britain doesn't give in in 1940 changes the game, but transforms it. You know, Britain will become a base. Um, It'll have the economic support of America, and then soon it'll have the military alliance with America. And from this base, it'll make propaganda. It'll help resistance movements. It'll send out spies and SOE. It'll be home for government. It'll give people hope in all these occupied places. Um, and the commander raids, butcher and as Churchill calls it. It'll just tie the Germans down. Tens and hundreds of thousands of troops will be tied down, not doing other things like fighting mm-hmm. the Soviet Union. Um, and then, of course, it'll also be a, a place from which uh, uh, bombing fleets much, much larger than Germany was ever able to make will embark British and then American, um, in huge yeah. raids to batter Germany and Italy. Um, as the, as the, and, and then finally, of course, it's without Britain, there's no D-Day. There's no second front. Um, so it is completely transformative. A lot of people think it also makes Hitler rush Barbarossa. He might have taken more time to attack the Soviets. But he was worried about the growing strength and the growing threat from Britain and how Britain might try and bring the Americans in. So that's disputed.
2: Um, Yeah. You know, we we often talk about Hitler making dumb decisions and the invasion of the Soviet Union possibly being his dumbest. I mean, if you're thinking that Britain is going to be a problem and it's going to suck the Americans into the war and the Americans are going to be a bigger problem... (laughs) possibly getting shot of one of your biggest allies at that point. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not the wisest decision in the world. Absolutely. I mean, okay, you can, you can do without Mussolini, but really you don't need Stalin pissed off with you. You do not. You do not. But again, it's just a,
4: an insight into the dysfunction and the, the romantic sort of silliness of so much German decision-making,
2: which isn't the image
4: we have of them, so not the image in that stupid film. Um although actually to be fair to the film they do make Goring into a bit of a sort of buffoon. Um Yeah. Yeah, I I think there's a kind of mounting panic that we need to settle this thing quickly because it's World War One all over again. And guess what? It yeah. is World War One all over again.
2: That is what happens. Well yeah, you said uh, they're terrified of getting of not knocking everybody out quickly, getting dragged out into a attritional war that they just cut It's exactly what happens. But you know, they haven't even got their economy working. Um,
4: you know, Hitler doesn't want women working in factories. He wants them having babies for the for the you know, fatherland. So, I think when the Battle of Britain starts, Britain, which is supposedly the underdog, I think there's like four fifty a month fighters being made. I think in Germany it's like two hundred. Yeah. You know, and this is d- discounting all the help that's going to come from factories in Canada, and then later America. And Germany later in the war does crank up its economy, but at that critical moment when they absolutely have to win or face the long nightmare of a rerun of the First World War, at that critical moment, they just, their minds on other things. Hitler's with Albert Speer planning Germania, you know, planning, you know, incredible new building projects or the, like I say, the generals are all looting art or brothels of Paris. You know, I guess to them they'd won the pools, hadn't they? They'd won. The great dream was taking Paris. It frustrated them, their fathers, you know, and the the army. And they they took Paris, and surely that's it. Surely now we've won. Uh. -uh. You haven't. No. And you need to get serious. And they weren't. They were not serious. And they paid the price because uh, in Britain they met a country, despite all of the um, caricatures, um, that was quite serious, or was rather ruthless, and was very professional no more so than Dowding and his Air Force, Um, which is you know, possibly the greatest and certainly one of the most groundbreaking um, kind of military evolutions. I mean, even now when they talk about command and control, whenever there's a war, it goes back to the ideas that, that Dowding and his men pioneered. And it wasn't just the command and control, it was the repair system, it was this national, the maintenance, it was... It was an enormous national effort, phenomenally well run, that kept, uh, that kept the RAF in the game, even when it was hard.
2: Um, yeah. Anyway, I know you don't want to talk about the actual air war quite so much. It's less that we don't want to talk about. It's more that we've, we've covered it. Of course. Uh, in several times. And I'm keen for our listeners that we don't keep going over the same rages. Um, although if you disagree, history rages, you get in touch. We will quite happily keep releasing the same episodes. So obviously forcing cancellation of sea line is, is good for Britain and it is a slap in the face to, to Germany. You've mentioned that it's quite important in, in influencing America. How does it influence kind of everybody else on that world stage that's, that's involved in this conflict at the moment? I mean, for, yeah, what does Germany think about it? What does France think about it? What's Franco sitting there thinking about and, You know, how does it influence the wider war? That's a good question. I think, um,
4: I I wonder if Franco might have been braver and thrown his lot in with uh, Hitler and Mussolini. If Britain had fallen, I think he probably would have done. Um, But, you know, America is the key. And in in a sense, the single biggest story in 1940 is what will America do? Churchill knows this from the very first day, the first hour, he's in number 10. when the crisis is at his absolute peak. And he's on to... Roosevelt, right from the word go. And it's important, I think, to understand that the change in attitude of America to Britain is running in parallel with the story that we're discussing. First of all, in the 1930s, Britain has a terrible reputation in America, especially in the Democratic Party, and especially with the New Dealers who are around FDR. You know, they think Britain is this brutal, imperialist power Bosses the world with its battleships and its bayonets, shoots down protesters in India, its trade policies have caused the recession, the global recession. Partly true. All of it's partly true. So Britain's a bad guy. And it's not obvious to them that we're any worse or better than Hitler. That sounds ridiculous because we know what Hitler then does. But in Mm. 1938, to a lot of people, well, two Mm. rather unpleasant powers might fight each other. What's it to do with us? Um, And don't forget, uh, the Democratic Party, which is Roosevelt's party, has a huge Irish-American component, heavily Republican, anti-British. There are lots of German and Italian-Americans who also vote Democrat, anti-British. So there's very little in it for Roosevelt to help us. And a lot of these Germans, and I met some of them because they were still alive when I did my series, Um, they come to Britain to write the obituary of an empire. And something very amazing happens. They kind of fall in love with Britain. And it's partly, I think, due to the things that they wrote and said that this underdog myth actually emerges. They stop mm-hmm. seeing us as an imperial overlord and they start seeing us as heroic underdogs, which is inevitable. You're, you're in London, the, the bombing starts, you're Ed Murrow. It's horrible. It's incredibly exciting. People are being very brave. And of course, the bombing of London was a seismic event. People have been terrified that such a thing would happen and they, expected casualties, way, way worse than actually happened. So the the Mm -hmm. heroism of Britain, that changes the public opinion, public opinion as ever in America or any democracy, changes the politicians. It becomes possible for FDR to start giving the British help, which a few months earlier, it was politically impossible. So yeah, Yeah. refusing to give in, fighting dirty if necessary, frustrating the invasion plans, all of these things are essential in changing America's mind. Although, just to be a little bit more cynical about it, as the war goes on, the tensions about imperialism will always be there. You know, America will always be fighting a war, as as Keane said, partly to destroy Hitler and partly to destroy the British Empire. But that's a conversation <laughs> for another day.
2: <laughs> well, it could say it achieved both, really, didn't it?
4: It kind of did. It's
2: sort of what Halifax predicted. And when Churchill said, I don't care. So I've always been intrigued by how we go about getting America into the war because it isn't, as I understand it, there isn't just FDR waiting for the political opportunity to do so. There is a lot more to it than that because they, isn't there a whole Dirty Tricks and almost smear campaign set up on to, to target American politicians to try and get them to vote in favour of helping? There's, uh, and and so There are all forth. sorts of stories and some of them are still um, in the in files that are sealed
4: and, and rumors. And there's an amazing story that Andrew knows well about Tyler Kent, who's Kennedy's cipher clerk, who's arrested Kennedy, America's ambassador. It's Mm -hmm. suggested that he's held as a threat to reveal that Kennedy was a secret Nazi sympathizer, which he probably was. And that (laughs) stops Kennedy running against FDR, which he promised to do. Kennedy was going to run on a kind of peace ticket. I'm the man to make a deal with the winners of this war. That was going to be his, 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 pitch. Um, but by the time the election comes around at the end of the year, it's politically impossible for him to do that. Opinion has, has changed. And there's lots, of, there's lots of other stuff going on. I mean, there's obviously we, we offer, you know, Joseph wants to get these destroyers as a sign, 50 destroyers from Roosevelt to help with the U boats. And, and as a sign that America in some way stands behind Britain. And he, we're prepared to give them uh, the Americans uh, basing, basing rights all over the world in British territories to get that, and all of this is really you know begins the journey that goes to lend lease and the Atlantic Charter and the, the, the America becoming the arsenal of democracy and underwriting Britain economically. And this is long before Pearl Harbor, long before they're fighting. Mm-hmm. They slowly but surely become allies, and then funders and. I guess like today you're seeing them funding Ukraine. Uh, that's kind of yeah. how the relationship develops. This is, you know, I think st- stopping an invasion without America, yes. Winning the war without America, oh no. So it's really important.
3: We've spoken a little bit earlier about the sort of dirty tricks the British were going to pull with the, um, you know, the chemical weapons and the flamethrowers and all that kind of thing. Um, just to start to wrap things up and just give a nice close. Is there anything the Germans could have done that would have sort of tipped their hand? Or is it all going to be a complete catastrophe no matter what they bring to the table?
4: I don't see any way that there could be an invasion. The one thing that Germany could have done to really bring Britain down at that time, and again it goes to the romanticism of the German leadership, is have a lot more U-boats. U-boats were scary. they have been terrifying in the First World War. And, you know... They're pretty terrifying in the second as well, but I, Hitler had put resources into trying to match the Royal Navy on every level. So they were building these amazing battleships. They were building, they were building an aircraft carrier, and the money was spread too thinly. And at the end of the day, those battleships were always going to just get picked off, and they were eventually. No matter how much trouble they caused, if everything that had gone into the battleships and the aircraft carrier had gone into producing just dozens and dozens and dozens more U-boats. Then the situation in 1940 might have been really, really scary, and people like Halifax might have been able to make the case that we have to come to terms because we're just going to starve otherwise. So that's the one thing I think that might have really transformed the situation. But even that, I don't know. Uh, you know, Clearly, when America really starts to help Britain, and then we're now talking a year or so later and they get the Liberty Ships program, and they're making ships like every eight days or something.
2: Even, yeah. even. It's astonishing. You can't beat that. And
4: of course, the technology will change. There'll be longer range aircraft, there'll be better weapons, uh, and eventually you will get the upper hand against the U boats, which they did by 43. But in 40, yeah, that could have made a difference, I think. But thankfully, they're so stupid, they didn't realize they own the strongest weapon. <laughs> um, you know, and it wasn't the Luftwaffe. Um, at all. It was it was the U-boats.
2: Well, thank you very much Phil for bringing all that fury and for stopping many myths before they get across the channel. <laughs> have you enjoyed it?
4: I have and oh my god, the guy in the pub who says, this is pub wisdom oh you know, and this is straight from that stupid film as well um, you know, the, when they bombed London it really saved the RAF. No it didn't. If anything <laughs> it saved the Germans for a couple of days from getting beating but by the end, when the RAF had worked out that what was now going on, they got an even bigger beating. So yeah, I know I'm just copying James Holland.
2: But then again, <laughs> then again, look at my Twitter feed. He might being inspired
4: by. He might I think claim it is. to have copied me.
2: <laughs> well, thank you very much, Phil. That was absolutely excellent. A great
4: pleasure, gents, and it great to talk to you. Yes, thanks
2: for coming on. It was brilliant. Ray John. Ray, Ray John, indeed. <laughs> If you would like to know more about Phil's work, then uh, why not join him and Andrew on Scandalmongers Podcast, where you can find that wherever you get your podcasts, um, and we'll have links to them and uh, Phil's books in our show notes. You can also look out for Phil's regular articles in The Critic, and if that's not enough for you, then you can follow him on Twitter at Phil M. Craig. Once again, Phil, thank you very much for bringing Across Channel Rage. You're welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavill. And I am at Kyle G History. And we'd love you to join the ever-growing Angry Mob on Patreon. This really helps us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, entry to all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests and, of course, the coveted History Rage mug and you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash history rage. But until next week, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.